passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, it is great to be with you this morning. Um, this may seem like a, a random day for today to be the first day of our church calendar, but it actually is. Uh, and you might be saying, well, what on earth is, does that mean? Uh, it, it doesn't mean a whole lot beyond the fact that uh, we are um, taking some time as a church to just think of, of who God is calling us to be. We're going to press pause on, on our uh, sermon series uh, from the book of, uh, excuse me, we're about to go to the book of Colossians. And before we jump into that, we just thought it would be appropriate for us to, to take some time to ask the question, who are we as a church? We just sang about our identity as Christians, as individuals, but what is our identity as a church? Who is God calling us to be? Our congregation is about three and a half years old, as I mentioned earlier. And whether you've been with us from the start or whether this is your first Sunday with us, I think it is important for us, it's crucial for us, in fact, to take some time to ask, where is God calling us? And more importantly, who is God calling us to be? You may not realize it, but we've actually been kind of wrestling with that question for the last year or so. Back in December of last year, we took some time to, to look at our calling who is God calling us to be as a church, as Crosswinds Church here in Spencer? Who are we called to be? And we realized or, or talked about the fact that God is calling us to be a healthy church that plants healthy churches. That is our calling as we seek out or we seek how we are to live out the Great Commission, that we are supposed to seek out how God, uh, we are going to live God's calling for us. It is to be a healthy church that plants healthy churches. And it sounds great, but the real question is, what does that look like? What does that mean? It's a high calling. How are we going to live that out? I think the first question for us to, to wrestle with is, what does it even mean to be a healthy church? How can we plant healthy churches if we don't know what a healthy church is in itself? And so we spent some time last spring looking at the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy talks all about the church. What does it mean to be the church? And next week, as I mentioned, we're going to jump into the book of Colossians. And again, this kind of focuses on what does it mean for us to be the church in light of the greatness of who Jesus is. But this morning, I want us to just look at one facet, one more facet of what it means to be a healthy church. And I think that this is an essential truth for us this morning and indeed every single week for us to remind ourselves of this because if we don't realize this, we could go decades. We could even, we, we could go years of, of shortchanging the city of Spencer and the surrounding communities with the best that, that crosswinds can offer to our community if we miss this. This is how essential this is to, to who we want to be, who God is calling us to be as a church. That if we miss this, we are doing a disservice to the people uh, who surround us every single day. You might be saying, well, what is this truth? I, I think it's simply this. A healthy church is focused on others. It's not focused on itself. A healthy church is, is focused on others, not on itself. 
And so the questions we're going to be wrestling with this morning are questions of, are we actually concerned with others? Are we as a church, are we as individuals actually concerned with those who are outside of the walls of the church? Do we actually care about those who are separated from Christ in this life? Do we actually care about those who chase after false idols, searching for satisfaction in a a place that they will no longer find satisfaction? Do we actually care about those who see no need for the gospel in their lives? Do we actually care for those who are trapped in sin? Do we actually care for those who are broken and hurting? And I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning, I know if I'm being honest, I can tell you that this is an area of weakness in my own life. I think it's an area of weakness for our church. It's an area of weakness for the American church as a whole. I think the American church does a subpar job of fulfilling the second part of what is our, as Crosswinds Church, our mission statement. You might know what our mission statement is, passion for God, compassion for neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And if you work your way through that, passion for God, I think you can check that off and say, hey, we do a pretty good job at being passionate about God. We're passionate about God when we gather together and worship through song. We're passionate about God and, and, and truth about who God is through the proclamation of His Word. This takes place on Sunday mornings. It takes place in Bible studies. It takes place in our Sunday school classes. I think we do a pretty good job of passion for God. Compassion for neighbor. I think we do a pretty good job at that part as well. We try to love those who are around us. We try to show the the love of Jesus to every single person who comes into the doors of Crosswinds Church. But then we get to the second part of our mission statement. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Do we actually try to bring the life-changing message of Jesus Christ to those who are outside of the church, those who see no need for the church. And as you begin to wrestle with that, I think we can see that this is a weakness for us. Now, here's the good news. If we do reflect on this question, and we ask, do we actually care about those who are outside the church? I think that we can answer, yes, we do. We absolutely do care for those who are not a part of any church. There's this heart within us that if we think about it, yes, absolutely, we we want those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are trapped in sin to come to know Jesus. I would guess that no one in this room this morning would say that they don't care about that. And yet, one of the most powerful uh, devices, one of the most powerful methods of the enemy is distraction. He distracts us from this calling. He distracts us from this heart that, that each of us has, and yet we oftentimes don't think of. We oftentimes don't think of the gravity of the situation that faces so many people. Because we're distracted with lives that are filled with so many other things. Good things. Things that we enjoy. Things that are good gifts from God. And yet, they can make us busy. 
And more importantly, they can cause us to forget the urgency of the Great Commission. I think for a variety of reasons, the idea of being intentional and sharing the gospel with those who do not know Jesus uh, seems to be a dying art in the life of Christians. Uh, I just want to share two reasons, uh, two roadblocks for us this morning. The, one, the first one is this. Reality is there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so many hours in the day. From the moment we wake up until the moment our heads hit the pillow at night, our days are jam-packed with good things. Remember, good things, family, our vocation. If we have children, it's filled with children's activities. If we have spouses, we try to spend time with our spouses. And if we're lucky, we'll try to enjoy the good things that God has given us with our hobbies. We're not opposed to being intentional and reaching out to those who are around us, but the thought of adding one more thing to our schedules can seem overwhelming. Last March, I was in Chicago. I was meeting with a bunch of fellow pastors, and we were uh, just talking about this question. We were talking about how we could create margin in our lives so that way we could build relationships with those who are outside of the church. And the, the leader of our group, a wonderful, godly pastor, shares his heart to everyone in that room. And it was something that resonated with each of us, and I would imagine it resonates with many of us here this morning. He said this, I get that I am called to build relationships with those who don't know Jesus. I understand that that is a part of my calling as a Christian. It's something that I should do. And yet, the reality is my day is so full as it is that if I were to go home and I were to tell my wife and my children that a part of my Christian duty is to go spend two hours a week sharing the gospel with those who don't know Jesus, Or even if I were to just invite people into our home, into this place where they want rest and they want time with their husband, they want time with their their dad. If I were to do that, it would be devastating to them. Our lives are so busy that sometimes it feels like we're just trying to keep our heads above water. You see, we're not opposed to the importance of sharing the gospel with others, but the thought of adding one thing more to our schedules that are already so full seems the exact opposite of what we read earlier. When Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that seems like a burden that's too heavy to bear to add one thing more to our schedules. And so, one of the barriers that is between us and an intentional life of sharing the gospel with those around us is busyness. And I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't really know the solution to end that busyness. If I look at my schedule, my life, all of the things that I'm doing, I don't know what I can really cut out because they're all good things. They're all important things. It's a challenge that faces us. Another challenge this morning, uh, in addition to this balancing act that, that all of us kind of wrestle with, is the thought that we have never really been fully equipped. Many of you can uh, relate to this. We feel like we don't have enough knowledge. We fear that we are going to say something wrong. We feel like we need a guide and on and on and on. If, if only someone would, would give us a class on how we can effectively share the gospel with others, we would be more prepared and more prone to share the gospel. I'll be honest with you uh, again, uh, as someone who has been through many of those classes, many classes on evangelism, apologetics, I've read a number of books, but I'm not someone who's quick on my feet. 
It doesn't get any easier once you have those classes. There are many other roadblocks to us fulfilling our calling as a church that we could look at, but I want us to just focus on those two. Busyness and a lack of uh, being prepared. Does the Bible say anything about that? Well, of course it does. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it this morning. How can we overcome these roadblocks? How can we as Christians be more intentional about living out our calling, not just as individuals, but as a church? If we want to be a healthy church, how can we improve our church's health over the next year? If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to John chapter 1. We're going to be in John 1, starting in verse 35 this morning. As you're opening to that passage, I want us to just uh, bring you up to speed with where our passage begins. John 1 opens uh, by introducing us to two characters. It introduces us to Jesus and John the Baptist. The Gospel of John opens by telling us who Jesus is. It tells us that Jesus is the uncreated God. He's the one who creates all things, and he has come to earth as a man in order to save his people from their sins. In contrast, there is John the Baptist. John 1 tells us that John is not the light, but he comes to bear witness to the light. He comes to bear witness to who Jesus is, to point people to Jesus. And John begins his ministry, and he is radically successful. A revival breaks out in the nation of Israel under his teaching. He's teaching the people about repentance, about faith, and people are coming to him in droves to hear his teaching and to be baptized. And one of the people who comes to be baptized by John is Jesus. Now, John knew that the Messiah was coming. He knew that the chosen one was coming to save the people from their sins, but he didn't know who the Messiah was going to be. He needed God to reveal that to him. And the Holy Spirit did just that. The Holy Spirit told John privately that the the, the one that he sees the the Spirit of God descend upon is the Messiah. And as he was baptizing Jesus, he sees the, the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. And he realizes this is the Messiah. This is the chosen one. This is the one who comes to save the people from their sins. And in John chapter 1, he declares to everyone, he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one who is provided by God. This is the one who sums up the entire Old Testament law. This is the one who fulfills all that we as followers of God could not do. John declares to everyone who is in attendance, this is the Lamb of God. This is the promised one. The next day, John is with a couple of his apprentices or disciples, as as our text says, and Jesus appears again. Let's pick up in verse 35 and see what John says. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, And they followed Jesus. John 
just about 24 hours after he realizes who Jesus is, sees Jesus again, and he tells them or reminds them that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He doesn't try to prove to them how he knows that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He doesn't even try to prove that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He simply says what he knows. He says Jesus is the one who comes to save the people of Israel from their sins. Note what his disciples do. The very end of that, uh, of verse 37, it tells us his disciples leave him and they go and follow Jesus. And what we know from John, or of John, from other parts of, of the Gospels, he's completely okay with that. He knows that his role is simply to reveal to people who Jesus is or who the Messiah is, to point them to Jesus. He, he knows that for him, loss is actually gain. He knows his, his calling as a, a man, as a prophet, is to point people to Jesus. He may lose disciples, and in John's mind, he hopes that he will lose all of his disciples because they will one day follow Jesus. His desire is to be a faithful servant pointing people to the Messiah. Now let's just take a moment and pause and think about about what that means for us this morning and our own concern for those who do not know the gospel. When we look at John's life, what what can we learn? I think the first thing is this. John doesn't really go out of his way to point out who Jesus is. John doesn't add another thing to his schedule. He doesn't try to be intentional in building up this relationship with the disciples to tell them about Jesus. He already has that relationship built. He simply is in tune with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, that's Jesus. Or excuse me, that's the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And when he finds that out, he tells people about it. See, John doesn't see that the the spread of the gospel is an extra task to accomplish in his life in order for him to be faithful to God. He simply sees it as an activity that he will do in the midst of his day-to-day life. God has entrusted him with influence over the lives of these disciples as well as with others. And he sees that influence as something that he is supposed to be a faithful steward of for the kingdom of God. What about you? Has God given you influence? I'm not referring to official influence or influence that comes with a title, but influence that can come from a peer-to-peer relationship. We are influenced by our friends, whether we would use that language or not. Do people respect you? Do people look up to you? Do people trust you? Then you have influence in their lives. Will you steward that influence for the kingdom of God? Will you steward it by inviting people into a relationship with God? Second thing I think we can learn from John here is is simply this. Are you open to the Holy Spirit's leading? In his book, Just Walk Across the Room, Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek Church, he says basically the only commitment that he has made in evangelism is to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit leads him or or calls him or nudges him to go and talk with someone about Jesus, then he will be faithful. And if not, he's not going to go out of his way and do it. Every single morning he wakes up and and tells the Holy Spirit, help me to be obedient to you. Help me be open to you. And just like John, when he has an opportunity, he shares 
the gospel? Will you bring the gospel into a conversation if you have the opportunity? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Now, from John's faithfulness, we see that these two disciples leave him and they go and follow Jesus. As we keep reading, we see what Jesus has to say to them. Picking up in verse 37 again. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Here we see that John's two apprentices start following Jesus. And Jesus notes that they are following him, and he turns to them and and says, What do you want? It's a really, really odd way of saying that. What do you want? There's two ways that we can interpret this. The first is, of course, by interpreting it that Jesus doesn't like stalkers. Uh, and he wants them to leave him alone. And so he turns around and says, what do you want? Stop following me. Go find some of your own space. I already have a shadow. I don't need another one. Or, and I think more accurately, Jesus is, he, Jesus is always intentional with his words. Jesus never says an idle word. He says this, Jesus, Jesus cuts to their hearts when he asks them, what do you want? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? Everyone is seeking a Messiah. Everyone is seeking significance. Everyone is seeking a place where they can find hope and peace and rest in their life. What are you seeking? The disciples are are, are taken aback by this statement. That they're just shocked that Jesus cuts to the heart instantly. And so they respond. The only way they know, they say, Rabbi, uh, show show us where you're staying. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good response, right? Just show us where you're staying. We've heard that you're the Messiah. Can you show us that you are the Messiah? How does Jesus respond? Come and see. Come and see. Fascinating statement. Fascinating statement from Jesus here. He could have performed a miracle to prove that he was the Messiah. He could have showed them how he created the world. He could have revealed to them some of the, secret, uh, the secrets of who God is. He could have wowed them with a theological argument. And instead, all Jesus says is, come and you will see Let me show you who I am in the everyday life. And again, I I think there's much we can learn today from this part of John chapter 1 as well. First, notice that Jesus is intentional and just cutting to the heart. He has no time for frivolity. He has no time uh, for entertainment. He simply just addresses the most crucial question facing his disciples. What are you seeking? That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't enjoy himself, that Jesus doesn't enjoy being entertained. Remember John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding. One of the greatest uh, uh, things that the the Pharisees didn't like about Jesus is they said that he was a, a drunkard because he spent so much time at parties. So Jesus is he's okay with 
having a good time. He's okay with, with entertainment and rest, and yet at the same time, he sees it, and, and he, he cuts through it and addresses the things that are most important in the lives of each and every person. If you look at our culture, our culture is without a doubt uh, one of, if not the most entertainment-laden, distraction-driven cultures in world history. One of the primary reasons why so, people, uh, so few people actually follow God is because they never really think about Him. We've created a culture, an environment, where we don't really have to think about God. And if we start to think about God, well, we can just turn our phone on or turn our TV on, and we will be able to forget Him relatively quickly. Philosopher uh, Peter Kreeft, he points out this in our addiction to technology. He says this, We run away like conscientious little bugs, scared rabbits, dancing attendants on our machines, our slaves, our masters. We think we want peace and silence and freedom and leisure, but deep down, we know that this would be unendurable for us. We want to make our lives complex We don't have to, we want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very thing we complain about. For if we had leisure, if we had time in our schedule, we would look at ourselves, listen to our hearts, and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified. Because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. The very notion of peace, of quiet, of time to sit and just do nothing terrifies so many people because it forces us to wrestle with questions that are important. I think one of the greatest challenges facing us in sharing the gospel today is not a a culture that is is hostile to the gospel, but rather a a curiosity or curiousness that comes when speaking to anything of depth and significance. It is sometimes just downright weird to address these types of questions in day-to-day life. No wonder people spend so much time talking about the weather or sports. Not that those are bad things, but if they're the only things we ever talk about, we're buying into the lies of our culture. Perhaps uh, even more importantly, notice how Jesus shares the, disciple, uh, the gospel with these disciples here. He doesn't start with a tract. Not that those are wrong. He doesn't start with a well-versed argument. He simply starts with a relationship. He invites the disciples to encounter him. And again, how how powerful is that for us today? If you want to share the gospel with a friend, if you want to share the gospel with a coworker, the first step isn't to go to college so you can prepare yourself to answer any sort of objection that they have. The first step is to build a relationship. That doesn't mean that reason, apologetics aren't important things. But far more people are convinced and and become Christians through a relationship than they do through a book or through a theological argument. Come and see. can be some of the most powerful words in your commitment to fulfill the Great Commission. 
Now, Jesus invites these two disciples to do just that, to come and to see what it means for him to be the Messiah. And so they spend the day with him, and, and then uh, we see what Andrew, one of these two disciples, does, starting in verse 40. It says this, One of the two who heard John speak and followed, was, uh, followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. He first, heard, or he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John? He shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Andrew comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and the first thing that he does is to go and find his brother. This is so important to him that he can't not share this news with his brother. I want, you to, I want to ask you a somewhat personal, probably sensitive question. I want you to raise your hand if you have a brother or a sister who doesn't know Jesus. Okay? Keep your hands up. Uh, now raise your hand if you have a parent or child or spouse who is not a Christian. Okay? Even more. Now I want you to raise your hand if you have a family member of some sort who is not a Christian. There's so many hands up right now. We can look at Andrew's words here, or Andrew's commitment, and we can relate to that. Whether it's our brother or our sister or our parents or a cousin or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, etc., etc. If we don't have someone who is a Christian, we can relate to Andrew's heart right here. The first thing he does, he goes and tells his brother about Jesus. As we talk about the importance of sharing the gospel outside of the church walls, probably the first person that comes to mind for many of you is that family member. And Andrew shows us that that is not just acceptable, but that's a good thing. See, gospel invitations can start in the family. But if we're being honest, those invitations rarely look the way that they did for Andrew. Few of us have uh, as much luck as Andrew did that our brother just so happens to be one of the future leaders of the early church. Families can be difficult because they come with a lot of baggage, a lot of history. It's rarely as simple as Andrew coming up to Peter and saying, I'm a Christian, let me introduce you to Jesus, and then all of a sudden it's all over. In fact, many of us can think of times and experiences where they have had those hard conversations and it has been the worst thing that has happened to your relationship. So, what are we to do? Well, I suggest we follow Andrew's lead. Andrew is what is called an introducer. If you, uh, if you look at the Gospels and you see whenever Andrew shows up in the narrative, every time he does, he just brings people to Jesus. The Gospels don't tell us of a time where Andrew shares the Gospel with someone. But it does show us a couple times where Andrew is bringing people to Jesus. Andrew is not a street evangelist. Andrew is not a revivalist. He's not gifted in rhetoric or apologetics. He's a fisherman. But he's a fisherman who knows Jesus. And so he makes an intentional decision to invite those who matter to him to encounter Jesus. As I mentioned, in all of the Bible, we don't see Andrew share the gospel. But he does invite people to meet Jesus, to come and see 
to encounter the Christ. And perhaps that's where you find yourself this morning, whether it's in relationship to your family or not. Maybe you look at your personality and you think, I'm not built to be a street evangelist. I'm not wired to think through apologetics and all of these carefully reasoned arguments, and yet I can invite someone. It doesn't matter if it's this church or not. Family lives far away. I can invite someone to know Jesus. I have no problem sitting with a person on a Sunday morning when I invite them to church while at the same time crossing your fingers and fervently praying that the pastor doesn't say anything ridiculous. I've been there before. I've cringed before. Gospel invitations start or can start with the family, and they can be profoundly simple. Come and see. Come with me. Let me introduce you to someone. Will they be successful? Will they always be as successful as they were for Andrew? Of course not. And yet we do see that there is hope. Let's continue reading. The next day, Jesus uh, travels north uh, from Judea to Galilee, and when he arrives, he encounters a man named Philip. He tells Philip to come and follow him, and it just so happens that Philip is from the same community that, that Andrew and Peter are from, and we pick up in verse 43, and we see what takes place next. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Philip. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom the Mo- Moses and uh, the, the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael asked him, or said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Philip begins to follow Jesus, and the first thing that he does is not to find a family member, but instead he finds a friend named Nathaniel and says, hey, I found the Messiah. Nathaniel, I know that you are a Jew, and you've been looking for the Messiah. You've been looking for significance. You've been looking for someone to rescue us. I found him. We have found him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel's response can be a little bit surprising to us. His response is filled to the brim with prejudice. It's an ugly response here. Nazareth, he sneers. That backwater town, nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. The people there are just, ugh, The Messiah can't come from Nazareth. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say if you've ever shared the gospel with a friend or with a coworker or a family member before, perhaps you've been surprised by their response to the gospel as well. Perhaps it looks a lot more similar to Nathaniel's response than you may have thought, at least in tone. The motives may be different, the words may be different, but the heart and the tone are quite similar. Don't bring religion into this. I'm already a Christian. I already know God. Leave me alone. Don't judge me. I don't buy into those myths. Don't talk to me about that. I can't believe in a God who allows so much suffering or hurt in this world. I can't believe in a God who's followed by so many hypocrites 
And on and on and on we could go with the responses that we hear that are surprisingly hostile to the gospel. How do we respond? Might I suggest that we respond in the same way Philip does here. Philip puts himself out there. He goes out on a limb to invite his friends to encounter Jesus, to share the gospel with him. He tries to cut to the heart by by focusing on something that actually matters. And then his friend Nathaniel responds with hostility. Nazareth. Nothing good can come from there. Nathaniel laughs at the ridiculous thought of the gospel. And Philip doesn't try to argue with him. He just says, come and see. Come and see. There are a few things that are more freeing, I think, for us than uh, realizing that the burden of proof does not, re- does not rest on us, it rests on Jesus. It's up to Jesus to prove who he is. It's not up to us. It's not our responsibility to do the hard work for God. It's not our responsibility to convince people who Jesus is. It's really up to Jesus. And so like Philip, we can say, come and see. You see, it's not that Philip ignores Nathaniel's prejudice or his concerns that he brings up or his reservations. He simply says, that's not my job to answer. I can't answer those but I know the one who can. Come and see. And Nathaniel comes. If we're being real, sometimes Nathaniel won't come. Many times that happens in our lives. Nathaniel won't come, but in this case, Nathaniel does come with Philip and he encounters Jesus and we see here, starting in verse 47, what takes place. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and he said of him, Behold an Israelite, Indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This may seem like a shocking turn of events. Nathanael goes from this person who is prejudiced and hostile against Jesus to someone who is confessing that he is the kingdom of or he is the king of Israel. You might be wondering what transpires that, that causes such a, a change. And the answer is Jesus' declaration of how he knows Nathanael. For the people of Israel, the fig tree held special significance. It was oftentimes used to describe or symbolize Israel itself. It was a common practice for people in the first century to spend time under the fig tree reading the Bible and praying, especially to pray for the Messiah. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Nathaniel, I saw you earlier today under the fig tree. You were praying for the Messiah to come. Now you may not have known it then, but you were actually crying out to me. I've seen your heart. I've looked past your prejudice. I've looked past your biases, past your blind spots, and I have seen your heart. I've seen that you long for the Messiah. I've seen that you want someone to come and to restore all things. Nathaniel, far before Philip called you, I saw you. And those words sink right to the core of Nathaniel. And in his mind, he reaches a conclusion that the only way that Jesus could actually know that is if he was exactly who Philip said he was. 
the Messiah. And so uh, I think that's a, a great way to end this morning, to remind us Jesus can soften even the hardest heart. Jesus can soften even the hardest heart. Our track record in evangelism will not be like John 1. John the Baptist says something and people go follow Jesus. Jesus says something and Andrew and and John, the other disciple, become Christians. Andrew invites Peter and he becomes a Christian. Philip becomes a Christian and then he invites Nathaniel and he becomes a Christian. It's not what it's going to look like for us. It's a lot messier. And yet here we are reminded that even the hardest heart can be softened through an encounter with Jesus. Remember, if God could save you, he could save anyone. If God could save you, he could save anyone. There's no one in your family who is beyond his reach. There's no one who is in your friend group or one of your coworkers who is beyond his reach. The person who has rejected him time and time again, who wants nothing to do with him, is not beyond his reach. An encounter with Jesus can soften even the hardest heart. So take a moment, answer this question. Who has God placed in your path to introduce to Jesus? Who has God placed in your path to introduce to Jesus? Remember, we're not called to do more. We're simply called to, to let Jesus permeate every facet of our lives. Like John the Baptist, to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus, to just bring people to come and see, to simply invite. Remember, the burden of proof rests on Jesus, not on us. Andrew and Philip did the only thing that they felt qualified to do, and that was to invite people to experience Jesus. And in one sense, isn't that really what it means to share the gospel? To tell a world that is searching for meaning. Come and see. Let's pray. God, it is our desire to be a healthy church, a church that is focused on others and not just on ourselves. A church that takes seriously the calling that you have given to us. And so, God, we ask that you would help us. Give us the courage and the strength to be obedient, to follow faithfully, to serve you, to step out of our comfort zones, and to invite. God, even when we are faced with hostility, I pray that we would not give up hope, but that we would remember An encounter with you can soften even the hardest heart, just like it did with ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we continue in worship, I invite you to stand. Today is the first Sunday of the month, and on the first Sunday of the month, we uh, participate in communion. I think communion is especially powerful this morning as we talk about what it means to come and see, to encounter Jesus. And one of the ways that we encounter Jesus is through the bread and the cup. We're reminded of the covenant that he made with us, that he laid down his life for us, that we might be considered children of God. 
So here in a few moments, we're going to pass out the bread and the cup, and we ask that as they are passed, you hold on to that bread and cup until everyone has been served, so that way we can partake together as a sign of the unity we have in Christ Jesus. Crosswinds Church has an open communion table, which means that if you've professed a faith in the Lord Jesus, believe that he has rescued you from your sin, then you are welcome to join us this morning. After, the, uh, after we all take communion, uh, we ask you to hold on to your communion cup, and then we'll pass some baskets afterward that you can place those in as well. Let's pray as we approach God's table. God, we are humbled by the thought that you have come, Jesus, that you have laid down your life, and that you invite us to participate, to participate in you, to participate in the work you are doing in the world. And so, God, now we ask that you would come, examine our hearts, and turn us to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.